1: Hello dear listener and welcome back to Owning It The Anxiety Podcast with me Caroline Foran. Don't forget to sign up to Owning It Real Time where I help you move through your most anxious moments right as they're happening for you. You can sign up at the link in my bio on Instagram or in the podcast description, the episode show notes that you will find here wherever you're listening. This week I'm talking about separation anxiety with Dr Rebecca Quinn. It's her specialty, she is so knowledgeable on the subject and this is primarily about separation anxiety in kids so this is particularly for uh, parents of kids who are dealing with separation anxiety but also we do talk about separation anxiety as it uh, manifests in teenagers and for adults because it really is a thing that adults experience too. So it's not just for parents but it is predominantly from a parenting perspective. Thank you so much for listening and I hope you find it helpful. Rebecca thank you so much for joining me on owning it the anxiety podcast this has been this episode has been a long time coming for my listeners but particularly for me so thank you for being here. My pleasure Caroline. We're talking about separation anxiety um, and this is a big subject and um, I can't believe I haven't gotten to it till now but I guess it's only become super relevant to me and my experience and I am always kind of drawing on my own experience with the podcast since i've become a parent um so there's a lot to get through i mean it is a big topic and i ha- i put it out to instagram and i got a lot of requests for to pe- for you to answer some questions so we might go through some of them well first of all can you tell me a little bit about your specific expertise in this area
2: yeah sure Caroline. so i've worked with children and adolescents with a wide range of different kind of mental health difficulties for 15 years now and particularly since uh starting my own private practice in the last year um anxiety has made up of first of all 80% of referrals Mm -hmm. um with separation anxiety being I'd say 50% roughly of that 80 um I think COVID has been largely responsible for um that particular increase so I've worked with it in that area then I've also worked with it a lot um in children with uh, disabilities or additional needs, who are particularly vulnerable, particularly dependent on their parents, and therefore the separation is even more intense um, for that particular group of people. So um, in children and adolescents, and then previously when I worked with adults, I would have seen some separation anxiety there also, Caroline. So I guess across the lifespan it comes up.
1: That's so interesting. Like, well, I wanted to clarify that at the beginning, that this isn't just an episode for parents, because, I mean, separation anxiety, if someone if someone really struggles with anxiety anyway, if they're really suffering, they're likely to experience separation anxiety from whether it's their comforts or the people who make them feel safe. So mm-hmm. it's I think we'll focus a lot on children, but it is, you know, it, it is like you said, it's it's such a widely experienced mm-hmm. thing. And um, I think it's just more. We're more acutely aware of it in children and it's so much easier to identify in children. But can you start by telling me just like what is separation anxiety? Yeah, sure. It's very normal. First of all, a
2: developmental fear that emerges roughly around the age of kind of five, six months when the child develops this idea of what's called object permanence. So they realize that, oh, mommy and daddy exist even when I can't see them. So it emerges around that point in development Um, It continues then and it can peak, I guess, around the 14th to 18th month mark when the child is able to walk and becomes more mobile and finds themselves being able to separate even more from their parents. And it can continue then and peak again around the age of three Four and five, you know, around those transition points, Caroline, when, as I'm sure you're well familiar with, uh, the child starts to go to preschool and then it can peak again when the child starts to go to school around the age of four or five. Generally, then, with normal kind of separation anxiety, it peters out over time. And if it doesn't, then and if it gets worse, if it gets quite debilitating, you have um, or you need to look at what's called separation anxiety disorder. So there there are two quite separate um, entities, really. So there's the regular uh, separation anxiety that can peak and trough throughout your life at transition points. And then there's the disorder realm where it's more significantly debilitating mm. and you um for example you're afraid to leave your house without the caregiver or your attachment figure you worry about something happening to them you worry that they're going to die or be in an accident you're checking in on them um you also it also if you're in the disorder side of things um you are likely to want that attachment figure by you all the time particularly at bedtime so it can really peak at bedtime and you might find it really difficult to sleep without them there and you might also have uh, we see a lot of kind of nightmares or dreams that have the theme of separation or harm coming to their caregiver so it is important to distinguish regular developmentally appropriate separation anxiety from um, what's called the separation anxiety disorder that you see psychologists and psychiatrists might diagnose
1: and I mean say my son is he's two and a half now I, even to think about the disorder realm yeah. already sends me into yeah because you always I mean I'm an anxious person anyway you always worry and you catastrophize and I mean I'll I'll, I'll fill you in on my own experience to just help give the listener something to, to a story I suppose to add context to it but at what point how would someone know? how would a parent I mean we're all rookies How would we know what is a normal, healthy level of separation anxiety and what isn't?
2: Yeah, that's such a good question, Caroline. And it always comes back to the extent to which it's impacting on their everyday functioning. So um, if your child is refusing to go to school, they're finding it really difficult to go to school. They are refusing to leave your side at home. It it would happen as well. Um, They are having huge difficulty sleeping without you. So when the symptoms are really frequent, when they're intense, and when they're going on as well for a long period of time. So this needs to go on for a number of months before it's you've moved into the problematic realm. So this is a child who literally finds it very difficult to function without you kind of glued on to them. Yeah. So you're looking at the the frequency, the intensity, and the duration of the the symptoms for want of a better description
1: but even at that I mean yeah that's it's quite a scary thought and it it makes you think oh my god life is just going to be so difficult for both of you but that's not to say it's not something that can be improved upon and because I get so many messages from people reassuring me about you know my own issues with my son's separation anxiety and, and like they tell me about you know those initial periods of starting play school or whatever and it's like it's it seems to be so hard and for for parents so bad that they think this is never going to happen and then you know they just adapt and it kind of just corrects itself and then they're running in delighted so even without doing anything at all it can resolve itself which I think absolutely yes
2: yeah and Caroline I love um there's a phrase from a, a book that I recently um, read. It is um, The Myth of Normal by Gabor Maté. Oh, my and God, I need to read that. Yeah. So what, what he says is that independence is uh, nature's agenda. OK, and we forget that we as you say caroline we catastrophize we imagine the worst and that belief by the way is the one thing that drives parents anxiety this idea that this will not get better and that they're going to be like this forever so those kind of faulty beliefs really drive our anxiety which ironically then it can make our child more anxious yeah but it is nature's agenda caroline for this to resolve like a child okay so take the you know the the mammy bear out in the forest like that mammy bear will eventually die and those baby cubs need to be there to uh, fend for themselves and have those skills to independently mind themselves so it's kind of it's written in our genetic blueprint like just like you know sometimes parents ima- say oh, my child is is just crawling for ages can't ever imagine them to to walk and then they do. And it is the same with independence, only independence is such a fluffy, woolly kind of abstract term that we don't see it in that concrete way as we do walking and talking. But it is one of those things that's in us. It's nature's agenda that it will develop with time. Um, It's just about going at the child's pace. And that can be, I think, the really difficult thing, Caroline, in a culture where independence is, you know, everything
1: confidence is everything it's it's a lot and it's this constant pressure to suddenly make your baby who comes into the world with all these needs like adapt as quickly as possible to your modern lifestyle which they were never designed to do and there's so much friction there there is I mean there's a lot more I want to talk about with kids but before we go into that which is kind of this the center of the conversation let's jump forward into adolescence I, I feel like from a lot of the interviews I've done with people who are not experts, but who tell me about their own anxiety experience. And they kind of go back in time to when they were kids or teenagers. And for a lot of them, it seems to manifest in this. Well, they have this memory of having this intense fear that something bad would happen to their parents and they wouldn't have labeled it as separation anxiety. Um, is that what it is? Is that if it's, if it's that feeling of something, something, because you know, when people describe panic attacks, it's like, I really believe in that moment that something really bad is going to happen to the person I love. Is that separation anxiety in an older person? It can be a sign of
2: it, yes. But that thought alone could just be a symptom of kind of more general anxiety. And that's what your panic is hooked onto in that moment. Um, Separation anxiety in teens is more when you're constantly checking. Again, it's about the frequency of it, you know, and how long it's been on for. And you're constantly checking on that parent to see where they are. Are they safe? Um, You might even be following them. So it is quite significant to be described as a kind of a separation anxiety disorder in teens. So I guess if you are having that thought on a regular basis and if you're then acting on that thought by checking and calling and um, not going places because you want to be close to that parent, then it's
1: going into separation anxiety. I mean, I think it's something we can all experience at vulnerable times yeah. in our lives. So it doesn't, exactly. doesn't have to, we, and we don't necessarily have to look for it to be something we put a disordered label on because sometimes, I mean, for me, that almost begets more anxiety when it's like, oh, that's the way I am now. And it makes you think that you can't move beyond it or change it. And so I, I tend, I certainly have never, well, no one has ever um, diagnosed me as having any kind of disorder disorder. Um, but I would describe myself as someone who is very capable of tending towards anxiety, and then there's times in my life where it's not a feature at all, um. And I that 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 story that I tell myself helps me, um, as an adult. But I remember certainly as a teen and in my early twenties, and I don't know whether it was separation anxiety, like you say, or whether it was just the hook that my anxiety was latching onto. But I, I was struggling a lot with. IBS and, and it was all anxiety I just didn't know it at the time Um, but to me I, I just sort of started to realize that I, I would never not feel well if I was with my mom and I was terrified to go abroad or go away with friends and and feel untethered And but if she was going to come with me I would have easily gone to the other side of the world Um, I didn't want to go to a university that was further than too far from my house it was kind of my house but also my mom in particular because when someone Makes you feel safe and makes you feel, you know, at ease and 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 secure. That's wonderful. But then when if they're not always there, it can kind of go against you. Um, and I remember feeling just so relieved when I was, I mean, really in my late twenties to start to feel like I am my own safe haven. And you know, my mom lives on the other side of the country now, and I'm just so glad I worked through that. But there was a time when I really felt she would travel a lot and I'd really feel so uneasy if she wasn't there. Um, but there's probably lots of other things going on, but that's kind of how it showed up for me. Um, but is it in, in adults, is it something that we can experience? And what does it look like in adults?
2: it's very, quite similar actually caroline like a lot of the um signs would be the same as you would see in children except maybe without the tantrums or the meltdowns would be a bit better at controlling it or hiding it but yeah you would have that kind of excessive worry that something bad is going to happen to the person that you love or that something as is bad, bad is going to happen to you without that person um you would be worried about them leaving home and you try to prevent them sometimes from leaving home or you might not leave home without them. Um, you like a, there's a lot of control that can come into it as well I've seen in, in adults so they might be constantly calling or checking or even following um, the person uh the, the attachment figure um, And it's often um, I've noticed just that there's kind of two things that trigger it um, or can compound it in adulthood and that one is becoming a parent um particularly moms. i think they're you know the changes that happen in that maternal brain
0: mm-hmm. um, the
2: amygdala becoming more activated that can really um consolidate or, or like make your separation anxiety worse
1: and do you mean separation anxiety towards your child
2: yes yeah yeah or sometimes like with myself what happened to me caroline i um We had to move over to Chicago when my son was four months old and I we were in an area where there was riots at the time and somebody had been killed, actually. So it was quite a threatening environment to be in. Mm -hmm. And my separation anxiety was actually around my husband leaving to go to work uh, because I just felt so vulnerable there on my own, trying to mind this little person. And, you know, don't forget all the other factors that were at play there, like the biological lack of sleep um, and all those kind of hormonal changes that happen with motherhood. And the environment that I was in was quite threatening and the social aspect as well, Caroline. Like I was without my support network. I was without my mom. So, um, yeah, that it can be in response to, you know, leaving your baby, but also leaving somebody that's helping you to mind your baby in motherhood. That is specifically. okay.
1: Um, And yeah. What did you say there about the amygdala when you become a parent?
2: Oh, yeah. So there's actually quite a lot of studies, Caroline, about the maternal brain. Um, There's so many changes that happen, like structural changes. Never mind the hormonal stuff. Um, that happens to a man's brain after a child is born and during pregnancy. There's so many changes that they've actually um, coined the term maternal plasticity to describe how much the the brain changes. And one of the things that they've noticed is that your amygdala. So they use fMRI and, and PET scans. They use these techniques to show that your amygdala and your panic circuits are will respond more quickly and more intensely to threats or perceived threats in in the environment.
1: And stay that way. I mean, is it just in the first? No, it's not. So, (laughs) yeah. (laughs) I'm like, I should just give up now then. (laughs) No, no, no.
2: So with time, like with everything, Caroline, and you know this, like anxiety um, and the amygdala will respond well to repeated exposure over time. And when they see that nothing is happening and that these Fears are kind of unfounded. Uh, that amygdala does learn to kind of not respond so at such a heightened uh, level, um, and also all those hormones that are contributing to that response, they all kind of even out as well in the first year postnatally, um. Yeah, another peak point is actually when you're weaning your, your child. Just sorry, the hormones okay. can change again around that point. Yeah, and that can be um, another trigger point for um, separation anxiety is when you're weaning your, your little one.
1: OK, and before we go back to dealing with uh, with separation anxiety in, in children, if someone listening now is like, oh, actually, I'm either a teenager or an adult. And I think what what they're talking about is kind of what I struggle with separation anxiety what's I feel like just identifying it alone is Mm -hmm. such a brilliant starting point to be like okay I feel unsafe when this is happening Mm -hmm. then how would you advise it to be uh, managed or resolved in adulthood before we go back to the children
2: um the first point Caroline is always um awareness just literally naming it as it is I am having this thought that something is going to happen to me and then normalizing it and validating it like this is so normal you know i'm a little bit on edge here because i'm going into this dangerous environment and of course i am because um evolution has designed our brain in such a way that when our caregiver leaves us and we feel scared then yes our panic circuits are going to activate um that really that has really helped me in the past anyway just knowing that okay this is my brain looking after me and then to kind of have maybe some thought diffusing or thought detaching kind of exercises that you use um, almost like an anxiety toolkit I suppose Caroline that you've talked about yourself in your books around what to do in that moment like maybe grounding yourself or sometimes saying the thought out loud or writing the thought down can just give you some distance from that um, separation anxiety thought and it doesn't then have so much power over you. I think what happens is, is that we get um, we you know we get sucked into that thought and we become it rather than being able to see it for what it is which is just a thought so those kind of you know um and I think for me
1: I mean one of the biggest things would have been um I think you keep getting caught by surprise you, you keep hoping that you won't feel that separation anxiety because you know you so and I'm the same now with my kid right I just keep thinking maybe he'll just be fine and then they're they're not or you're not and then it feels twice as bad because you're like oh my god this is confirming my worst fear but if you go into a scenario saying I'm going to feel really uneasy when my husband or whatever goes away this weekend allow for that acknowledge it and put in place the bumpers that will help you get through it I think that for me has been such a game changer it's just anticipating it because so often we want to pretend it's not there or just think positive or run away from it but if it's gonna if it's gonna come and bite you in the arse anyway you may as well say look this is how I'm feeling and even start by, say, for example, like, OK, my husband is going away for a week for work in a few months and I'm already completely unraveling about the idea to start small with little experiments with, OK, he's going to go to the shop and I'm going to allow myself to move through these feelings while while he's gone to the shop. And, and like tiny bits of exposure over time to build yourself up and like just getting really proactive like that to me and confronting the anxiety head on and hoping it'll just go away is as an adult, when you're the person experiencing it, for me anyway, has been a very important thing to do.
2: Yes, absolutely. There's so much in, in what you said there, Caroline. And you, you touched on this idea of like what's called emotional vaccination. Um, there's a book by Rebecca Kennedy. She's a parenting expert and she's written this book, Good Inside. And she talks about um, this idea of emotionally vaccinating ourselves against this feeling that is going to probably happen. Um mm. And just almost like you visualize yourself getting anxious when your husband goes. And then what am I going to do? I'm going to maybe call my mom or I'm going to take my deep breaths, activate that vagus nerve. Whatever it is you're, you're going to do. But you, you're preparing your brain for it because your brain doesn't actually know the difference between the, the chemicals that are released. It, it, it doesn't know the difference between what's actually happening in reality and what just the rehearsal is. So it will it's like graded exposure over time by doing that little emotional vaccination so you're giving yourself a bit of the um anxiety before the big event
1: okay Um, and I guess it's the same way that like I am now trying to approach the time when my son will go to Montessori which I am dreading so let's jump back to let me give you a bit about our story so far and then we'll get to the questions from my followers because they are desperate for some for some guidance I really didn't realize how commonly experienced it was. I thought I was kind of on my own over here. Um, but my son, I guess I'm not, I can't even remember at what age, but I started to realize, okay, he's a definitely of the sensitive variety. Um, you know, sensitive to scared of like loud noises and things. And and over time he would be very curious. And you know, I could just tell that he was anxious, but he was really interested in like explode exposing himself gently to something and but me being with him and, and I can't get over the awareness of him and and like he already is putting in place his coping mechanisms and he's two and a half. So partly i'm like okay i think when he's older he's going to be like such a well-rounded emotionally adept person but the separation anxiety is so hard to deal with um as obviously as he's getting older it's, it he's reaching i'm assuming a peak it's gotten a lot harder and at first at first the way it showed up for us was not so much that he was like freaking out when we left because when he was younger like when he was about a year and, and a bit whatever we weren't doing this whole okay mommy's gonna leave now because I just like if he seemed distracted I would just vamoose and then he'd be fine and that is kind of the way you do it for a while doesn't work for me now now if I did that there all hell would break loose but what would happen is he'd be totally fine he wouldn't even be asking for me he wouldn't he would be grand with his grandparents or whatever say if we went away we went away to a wedding or something um but then when we come back he's like oh he remembers or something that we weren't there and then it's like he would retrofit all that anxiety and and becomes so difficult and so clingy and so upset for a few days after to the point that I'm like, it's not actually worth going away because he's going to be so out of sorts and it would throw off bedtime and, you know, and he just need to be reassured again that we're going to be there. And um, so that's kind of how it started. And now then when all the t- tantrums and meltdowns started happening and um, which I know are, are normal, but there's like, I think there's like, there's, there's a meltdown and there's like completely, there's a tantrum and there's a meltdown, I guess is how I see it. Like a tantrum about something where you have a desired, they have a desired outcome. They want the toy. They didn't get it. Then there's a meltdown, which we had one of yesterday where like, he can see no, like the red mist comes over, you know, he's in fight or flight mode and, and it's so intense. So when all that started happening, the anxiety started showing up more, you know, um, when I was about to leave. Uh, so it's, it's definitely most acute with me. He really doesn't mind (laughs) poor Barry. He really doesn't mind when he, unless I'm not there. And then he jumps to Barry, like he's a pecking order, which I guess is common as well. Um, but we, a lot of the time, I guess I just, you know, people would say to you, just like drop him and run, like, let him be upset. And then like, he'll get over it. And I just learned so quickly that is, first of all, it's unbearable for me, but then I feel pressure to do it because that's what you're expected to do. I know it's so hard for him. And I want to be able to leave with him being okay with it. So me prepping him and being like, hey, mom he's going to go to work in 10 minutes or whatever. He would always be like, no, don't want me to go to work and be really upset. But his little brain would start to piece together. Okay, well, it's it's going to happen soon. And he would start to kind of process that. And and to this day, I try my best not, to, I, I know I don't know whether I'm doing it the right way, but he kind of feels like if he's part of the decision, it's easier and then he's fine to go so for example it's like hey mommy's got to go to work now in a few minutes if I just said I'm going to work see you later he would absolutely melt down and it would just he would be flooding with stress hormones and it would just be so hard for whoever's left with him and so hard for him and really hard for me that I was like that's just not the approach that I can take because it would just be too much for me so I say to him okay well what you want to do before mommy goes to work or I say well something can happen when mommy goes to work like you get to have your rice cake or you know if you really want to have your raisins well your mind is going to give them to you when, when mommy's gone to work. And then he's like, okay. So he kind of thinks he's making a deal with you. And then I do something like we, we do one more story or we do one more something. Now, obviously there's times where like something happens and you have to go out the door and I have to just deal with it. But then he says, okay, mommy, go to work now, gives me a kiss. And then he's completely comfortable with me leaving and he's fine. And that to me is how we've coped, but it's requires such a preps, like in, in advance like and I can't I, I have to be the one to do bedtime if if, if I want Barry to bedtime I have to be gone to work and like disappear a good hour beforehand so, so he can acclimatize to it just being Barry and then kind of forget about me um and yeah it was just I I had a really horrible experience a while ago where I we were stuck without a minder and then I he was minded in our house by a minder. So he was always in very close proximity to me and adding in the, just his natural tendency towards sensitivity and COVID being a COVID baby and not having much exposure. It all just has uh, accumulated into an incredibly sensitive and concerned. I, I feel like he came rushing into the world with an air of concern. Um, But I then found a minder who could mind him in her house. And she was like, no, just drop him and run. And I just took her advice as like, okay, you're the expert. And I feel, I still, I'm so upset by it because I should have known my baby. I, I feel like I should have known he was absolutely, and it wasn't just like a little bit of a whinge and then he calmed down. He was like lashing out physically. He was so, so frightened. She just, this stranger who he had never met just took him out of my hands. And then I walked away and I was in bits and I was like, is this this normal? I, and was like, you have to just do it. I'm like, I can't handle this. Lo and behold, I got a call. Like ten minutes later, she's like, "You have to come back and get him, Caroline." I don't know what's wrong with this child. She, all these things she's saying to me that made me feel so awful and made me feel, feel so worried about my kid. I said, "God, is is he like this at home?" And I was like, "Well, obviously not, because he feels safe at home." And the more I thought about it, I was like, "He did, had never been in your house before. I didn't even tell him we were going there because I didn't know then." You know, I was like, "Oh, we're we're not going to go to the park today. We're going to go this way." And he's like, "Where are we going?" And then suddenly, this stranger takes him, closes the door in my face. I'm so annoyed with myself that I did that because after that he was never the same honestly like he was so so anxious it took so long for me to reinstate another minder who was just in the house um and I I gave him such a strong fear response I know I I was only doing my best but I feel like I mean it could have been it easily could have been any other experience that would have you know made him more like this um but I've just learned that okay he's incredibly sensitive and now I'm you know, it's very hard to get him to separate from me. He he never wants to, um. And I, I get this. I'm sorry, I'm completely rambling now. But I get this worry that, you know, because this old school thought of like, you know, you, he needs to be independent. You need to just get get out. Like you need to sit in the front seat of the car. You need to blah 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 blah. And my gut instinct is like. I remember being an anxious kid. I remember craving my mother and wanting to know I was safe and secure. And I'm giving that to him. But you can feel like in the moment that you're making it worse or you're giving yourself a raw or creating a rod for your back or whatever. And I know from our chats and from chatting to um, Dr. Eva Durkin, you know, a little bit about attachment theory and how that's actually a good way to respond. But it's That's just a little context of where we are, I suppose. separation anxiety is really, it's really taking a toll on me. I feel guilty all the time and it's really hard to deal with in the moment. And it's really hard not to worry about how this is going to show up in the future or if it's going to unravel and get worse or if it's going to just resolve itself. And I'm very anxious about approaching Montessori stage where I'm just anticipating that I'm going to have to be there for like two months of an adjustment or worst case scenario, he's not able for it yet and we try again next year. So what do you make of all that? <laughs>
2: <laughs> oh, Caroline, yeah, there's such a mix, isn't there, in there of your own beliefs and expectations and worries about how it is now and how it's going to turn out in the future. And then there's that that episode that you had that was very difficult um, with the first child winter. Caroline, honestly, with time, I, I promise that his little amygdala will realize that, you know, you are still there and you are um feeding his his dependence every day and that's something that we do need to do and I could hear that battle there um that struggle between knowing how much do I um feed his his dependence on me and how much do I kind of encourage him to be independent and that's that's a big issue that comes into this and it's called um kind of the, the paradox of dependency really and it's backed up Caroline by so many hundreds of attachment studies that show that the more we accept our child's dependence on us the more likely we are and the more we actually do foster their independence so when a child um can see and know that they have a secure base there that's um, giving them the security that they need, the comfort, the care, and the closeness that they need. The more they have that secure base there, the more likely they are to venture from that secure base and become independent over time. and it it it's but some people i think feel that they have to push that independence um very soon on or maybe before their child is ready for it so it's about kind of going at the, the child's pace and giving them that security and that reassurance that they need um because garland i suppose if you um like say for example if you were to continue to so that that childminding situation, the first one, if you were to continue to do that and continue to drop him off in a very unfamiliar environment where he it was just maybe too much for him. Um, So, yes, it's always important to kind of push some level of separation, but um, sometimes it's too much. And if you're to continue to do that, I suppose he um a child might get the message that oh this world is a bit scary and unsafe Mm -hmm. and I have this person who kind of doesn't know how to respond to me and it it probably wouldn't have been the best to continue with that and Um, also
1: sorry not only did I did I decide not to do that but the minder compounded all my worries by telling me she wouldn't take him because he was too much of a handful she didn't say those words but Um, I I knew that's what it was and I felt mm -hmm. so like oh my god then it was like what's wrong with my child it's my fault I oh no. my, like what have I done and so it's just it's a big black mark on my mm-hmm. journey so far that has really influenced both of us I think um yeah but I I'm I'm, I'm really glad that I made the decision to be like Do you know what I don't need to try and just slot into society's expectation no. Um mm-hmm. he's not he's not able for that yet he's another level of sensitivity I was that child and I'm going to work with him and not against him Mm. and i was that child as well caroline (laughs) um and it is it's really hard And there's
2: like so the main thing that creates this separation anxiety is that biological drive it's not a parent's fault like if there's just one message that i would love listeners to take away um it is that it's nature's drive like that it's a biological drive to have to be close to the person that keeps you alive it makes such perfect evolutionary sense and then you have some children that experience it a little bit more than others maybe it's because they have a, a smaller window of tolerance um maybe they've had previous difficult episodes of separation and another thing to think about caroline as well is actually nothing to do with the child internally but it's the environment into which you put them so for example with that um childminder, maybe um that person just wasn't fully in tune with um your your child's needs with what he needed in that moment didn't know how to regulate him um but also children that have a sensitive temperament they can find you know crash environments in particular quite challenging from a sensory point of view just the noise the you know the rough and tumble from other kids that they might not be used to um kind of that tactile overload, the noise overload, there might be smells that bother them, you know, and with highly sensitive children, often there is that overlap between that sensitivity, that anxiety and, and that sensory awareness and that tendency to become overloaded in those kind of situations. Um, and just another thing to kind of to bear in mind if um, listeners are out there or are going into that crash scenario is that sometimes just because of staff turnover, the attachment figure, I suppose, can change on a regular basis because staff is moving on and that can be difficult um, for for a child. So, you know, there's so many factors like in psychology, we talk about the biopsychosocial model of understanding things, which is that there's, you know, there's the, the biology, the child's makeup, the genetics and so on, their window of tolerance. Um, then there's the social factors. Uh, which is like COVID hasn't helped, the environment that you're putting them into. And then there's the psychological factors as well, um, like the attachment relationship with the parents. So there's there's so many factors um, that it's never just a parent's fault. That's way too reductionist. It's not fair on yourself. And it's not true.
1: Yeah, I think what what makes me feel the need to almost defend myself and it is that I think especially people who have very chill kids or people who have no kids at all I very quickly say something like that another that child that they observe is chilled because their parents are so laid back and it drives me insane because I had every intention of being go with the flow easy breezy and we had to put a routine on things because that's what my son needed and it's not I've not decided to be this you know wound up it's not and and it's just, yeah, the fear of, and this comes up a, a lot in the messages I get, the fear of like, if you're anxious, you're worried, they're going to be worried. And I'm like, I'm trying my hardest to be so calm. And, you know, you're putting all your energy into supporting them. And then you like last night, I just shared on my stories, I was just like an omelette dropped on the floor. I had nothing left for myself. I was so at capacity of this constant need to support. So... I mean, we could be here all day just unpacking my own experience. But before we get to the questions, I would love if we could do as brief a possible run through of your do's and don'ts for separation anxiety that you had shared with me before we recorded.
2: OK, sure. Yeah. So I kind of divided up into kind of before the separation, during and after. It just really helps parents to kind of have some structure in the chaos of it all, Um So first of all, is just trying as best you can to do what you can to regulate your nervous system. Because if you show up a little bit calmer, it does help you to co-regulate and and calm your child in the moment. Um, I would also check in with your kind of beliefs and expectations. So um, that aren't going to help situations. So things like, oh, I'm going to traumatize my child or oh, I'm doing something wrong, this is awful, um, you know, and kind of just to question how accurate those beliefs are because they will get you heightened up in the moment and they're usually not true. Um, I would also practice separation. So I often like to call it like a scale of separation. And, you know, just like getting your child to ride a bicycle, you can't expect them to do it without cycling or attempting it. And it's the same with um, separation. We just have to practice it and maybe even doing it on a a daily basis, Um, even in the house, leaving them for five minutes, then 10 minutes, 15 minutes and so on. And having um, a little goodbye ritual that you repeat. And this was one that I really had to to practice. I would actually say the phrase um, out loud so that in the heat of the moment, at the time of separation, I would be able to say it without fumbling, foostering and going around in circles and making the anxiety worse. And then walk away confidently afterwards. So practicing that. Um, what would little, you say? So I would say, Lucy, I'm going to work now, love. You're going to stay here. You will. You're going to play. Have your lunch. Mommy will come then after lunch. I love you. Bye, Lucy. Something to that effect. So short, brief, and then I would walk away as confidently and as calmly as I could. Um. Now, I will say that it did take, you know, a long time of practicing that with her before we got to the point where she was calm with it. But just one thing to remember, Caroline, in the heat of that moment is that it's not your job to pull the upset out of your child or to stop them being upset. They probably will be upset because this is a normal evolutionary response. And it's about helping them to tolerate and work through that upset and not to get rid of it because we can't
1: pull a
2: feeling out of a child. So
1: do you think maybe in, I am probably it's making my life easier to wait until he's okay with me leaving, but then I'm kind of avoiding, I'm, I'm avoiding the meltdown, but it's probably, I need to almost let it happen. It's just so hard.
2: It is really hard. It is really hard. However, Always bear in mind that, again, this is a normal response. It's him saying, hey, you know, I don't want this to happen. And sometimes, Caroline, the more anxious we get about it and upset we get about it, um, we're giving them the message that, oh, oh, mommy's upset about this. Okay, maybe this is actually something to be upset about. It can make it a bit worse even. Um, It's almost like the, the pilot on the plane. Um, so and the turbulence situation. So you're on a plane, this turbulence, you're nervous. Um, I'm going to take my lead from looking at the the air hostesses and the pilot, you know, and if they are highly anxious looking, oh, my God, I'm going to get really anxious now. There is there is a problem. Whereas if they are cool, kind of calm, sturdy leaders that know, OK, this is turbulence. It's not pleasant, but we're going to get through it. That uh, will help me to, to calm down. And it is very similar in that separation um, piece. It is, it is difficult to see our child um, upset. However, upset is it's a normal emotion, just like happy, <coughs> excuse me, happy, sad, and uh, jealous. It, it is an emotion that your child will have to go through. And it's about helping them to tolerate that. Um, so just making sure that you can you and the person that you leave them with know how to regulate them in that difficult moment. So um, when the obsession is, is happening, you can you can validate it. It's OK to say, yes, it is really hard to leave Mammy. It is hard. But I know that in a few minutes you will feel or in a while you will feel a little bit better and all feelings will go. All feelings change. So trying to get that um, idea across to them that it's okay for them to feel that way. They're not alone in that feeling. You understand it. You've been there yourself before, but also giving them the message that feelings don't stay like that forever and that they will change just like the weather. And you can talk to them about this outside of the moment and explain about how feelings come and go so that they have that kind of um, emotional awareness about feelings. Um, So you you validate it um, and then you you walk away um if you know as confidently as you can trying not to over explain yourself or uh qualify your your goodbye because that as i said it's the the pilot on the plane coming really anxious and it can make things worse um also try to add in uh this definitely worked for me actually i remember with my little girl a little bit of humor um because this situation can get so serious and we get all get so tense and the child picks up on that and it, it can really help to introduce a little bit of humour. So when you're given, him a kiss, say, oh, I missed your nose. Oh, no. You know, just add in something, anything, if you can bring yourself to do that. Um, and that can take time and practice, but it does really help. It just lightens the, the situation, adds a bit of levity. It builds connection. It gets the positive kind of brain chemicals going as well. There is a lot in adding in a little bit of lightness into the situation if you can. Um, Or you might even ask the person that you're dropping your child to to do that for you if you're just not able to do it. Yeah. um, So the the other thing then, I guess, is just to make sure that the person that you're dropping your child to is as as confident as they can be with big emotions. So I know that really helped me like the crash that I dropped my little girl to. They were amazing. Like it just didn't bother them. They had this kind of air of confidence that I know this child will be fine within three minutes. And that really helped me. And I know it helped Lucy at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and make sure they know what regulates your child. Like so usually, um, Caroline, when a child is really upset like that as well, you know, kind of movement. Um, based activities really help to regulate and calm that kind of brainstem, that that brain, that amygdala that's overactive. So just things like rubbing them, a bit of deep pressure, walking with them, um, kind of just even swaying them from side to side, maybe moving them with a little bit of music. So kind of having um that list of activities that you can give to the caregiver can really help as well.
1: Reference the f- anxiety that they experienced after the fact like you know i i have done this with my son and i i have never known if it's mm. worth doing because i'm almost like i don't want to remind him of the time that he was scared and make yeah. him always be that way but i'm like oh you were upset earlier and he says yes you're upset i'm like oh why were you upset you didn't want mom to go to work and then yeah. i say and then i say something like um i know it, it's hard when mommy goes to work and, and i wish i could play with you all day too but mommy has to go to work and that's okay but mommy always comes back to Kaylin, and and, and didn't you have fun and so in a way i'm like it's okay to like yeah I don't want to pretend like it didn't happen is that is that a good thing to do that is a hundred percent the right
2: thing to do Carly. not that there's look you know there's no kind of black and white right or wrong but absolutely they do recommend like there's no point in avoiding it like that feeling is going to come up and in fact if you don't talk about it they feel more alone and more weird in that feeling which makes it worse for them whereas if you do as you've done caroline talked about it normalized it and another little thing that kids love is telling them a story about something similar that happened to you Mm -hmm. and how you got through it okay and i know your little man is only two and a half but honestly they do they take it in oh, he's well, well able. Able. very well able yeah so not only like talking about their experience but also yours like they just love to hear that storytelling really works wonders for kids and helps them to feel as I said less alone with that feeling because when they're alone with it they're afraid of it they're possibly ashamed of it they're confused about it and then you get the anxiety and all those other sticky feelings onto it and it can make it worse so um and and also, there's evidence to show that the more you kind of prepare your child for an emotion, the better able they are to manage it in, in the moment okay. rather than avoiding it and hoping it'll just disappear.
1: It's very hard to handle it at night time. And um, we I went from having a baby who um, adored going to bed um he was just such a like we slept would sleep through the night to now that that he's at this age, now suddenly bedtime has become very difficult. Cause of course he's like, I don't want to separate from you, but it's so much harder. He's not hearing any of the things I'm saying because he's bawling crying and he's he's so tired. I know, oh, and he's also dropped his nap, so he's overtired. And I like, I know from myself, like when you're ready for bed, like the part of your brain that would help you calm down is like so offline. And I'm sure they don't even have it developed yet, but it's it's really hard to handle it at night so you kind of have to handle you kind of have to experience and practice it during the day
2: yeah at night and like you say that thinking brain the reasoning brain the little bit of it that they have goes offline it's gone you know so that's when you move into the more um body-based movement-based um soothing activities almost like you would with a newborn um it's just movement is probably the quickest route to calming the brain and, and, your, and your mind so just things like Deep pressure, so hugging them in, in a blanket, um, soothing them, mis- like massaging their, their feet, rubbing their hair, all of those kind of soothing activities can really help at nighttime, time. Um, and preparing, just like you said, uh, during the day as well. Um, yeah, and it might take time before that eases out, but it sounds like the reason you're going through it now at the moment is because he's dropped his nap, so he's kind of extra um, upset then at night time.
1: Yes, it's not easy. Okay, I want to get where I'm conscious though of the time. I want to get to my questions. Um, what if the anxiety doesn't come at the time of separation, but after a while of being apart?
2: Yeah, that's also quite common. And I often see that happening actually when the separation isn't explained and when they're just kind of hoodwinked into, oh, come on, mommy, mommy's going, let's go. Um, And there, there's a load of distraction that happens first. And then the upset can happen afterwards. That's very common. And I would treat it in the same way, like just to give some reassurance, validate it. Yes, it is hard when mommy goes, but mommy will always come back. Um, and then kind of what like what you did, Caroline, so give them an element of control. Kids love control when they feel like they can't handle a situation or when they can't control where their mommy is. Um so what activity would you like to do now? You get to pick. So you acknowledge that they're upset you validate it and then you can move on to doing an activity whereas what happens often is, is that um they're hoodwinked they're in to the minders straight into distraction mode and they haven't had a chance to process or ask questions about mammy um i would also something i haven't said actually is um i would also get the minder to talk to the child about their understanding of what mammy or daddy is doing like so yes it is upset upsetting when mommy is gone and where is mommy gone so you're acknowledging you're validating and but then you're also kind of getting them to move into their thinking brain so away from their emotion brain into their thinking brain um and thinking about where mommy is that's right yeah she's gone to work and what car does your mommy drive oh red car and when is mommy coming back um oh she'll come back after lunchtime whatever so you're almost getting them to tell Back to you what's happening and get their understanding of it and sometimes you know you might find they fully understand it and they're upset anyway but oftentimes they actually don't have a clue what's happening and then you can fill the gaps for them and they often uh, can feel a little bit better so I would always um, name it uh, and talk about it rather than avoid.
1: How to balance meeting their needs and building resilience should you just persevere? Yeah it, that,
2: that's always the the really tricky one is the um the tightrope that you're walking on yeah so uh, yes perseverance and um kind of going at your child's pace and seeing your child really for who they are and what they need separate from kind of who we are and what we need so you know sometimes they all get kind of intermingled a bit um but yes i would um and you kind of know yourself like if a child's level of distress is going to 10 out of 10, then it's, t- you know, at a particular separation, it's time to take a step back maybe. And um maybe that particular child might need to go to a different child minders or you need to reassess the situation. So I often say to parents to kind of keep a little diary, I suppose, of how distressed your child is getting in particular situations. And if it's consistently like a 10 out of 10 distress, then we need to pair it back a step. um. But if you see it's reducing over time, then you're probably moving in the right direction.
1: OK, this is a really important question. Is it advised mm. to always say goodbye to a child? Child minders are always telling me to sneak off, but I feel it's better if they know.
2: Yeah, no, it's 100 percent better if they know.
1: Yeah, because uh, they will learn
2: not to trust you, really. You know, if you just sneak off and they're confused. They're, they're anxious because you're they can't see you anymore. Now they're confused. They don't know where you are. So like I said, there's the anxiety and all these other feelings that have been thrown in there as well. Um, Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, So no, always say goodbye.
1: I can't even leave the room without my two and a half year old, even if her dad is there, help. And we did go through a phase a while ago. I can't remember what it was. It seems like one little thing can happen and just knock us into like an extra sensitive phase where then... Mm-hmm. It's always this like domino effect, but there, you know, there was a while there where he wouldn't even in our own house. Like I, if I went into the kitchen, he wouldn't stay in the living room without me. He'd have to come with me. Mm-hmm. And I said, like, "Go into the kitchen there and grab your toy." And he's like, "No, mommy has to come with me." And now the only little bit of progress we've made is that he is sort of back to doing that in the house. Um, but that's really hard to deal with. So I guess that's you're really breaking it down into even tinier baby steps there.
2: Yes. Yeah. Exactly. And really looking after yourself in that situation as much as you can because that is very triggering for a parent to have that level of dependence um and then your stress will could possibly kind of escalate the dependence almost or or the child's kind of upset so it's really important to do what you can to try to regulate yourself in in that moment and take the baby steps to get that other person like the partner in and building an attachment there that's strong enough to take over then
1: yeah if you had insecure attachment with your primary caregiver as a child does it make you very attached as a parent
2: not necessarily no and particularly if you are very aware of it which it sounds like this person is very
1: articulate about it yeah Yeah.
2: yes yeah exactly um and if you see any of the signs of it coming in to your parenting it sounds like this person is, is aware of it and won't kind of just go into autopilot um so no, not necessarily, especially with that level of awareness.
1: A lot of questions about managing at, be- at bedtime. Um, mm. Is it worth talking through, like telling the story of bedtime in, during the day? Like, so I've been saying, I've been asking Kaylin, where does Kaylin sleep? And he sometimes says, Mammy's bed. I'm like, no, Kaylin sleeps in Kaylin's bed. Mommy, where does Mommy sleep? And he's saying, Kaylin's bed. So, and now he's starting to say, Mommy sleeps in Mommy's bed. Or I'm trying to, while he's of relatively sound, calm mindset. Yeah tell him the story of what happens at bedtime just yes. in a way you make I'm, I'm making him think of something that he doesn't even want to think about but i feel like it's good to prepare him yes way.
2: no it is yeah and that's such a good strategy like when they're in the green zone to practice it use dolls use cartoons if there's you know a bedtime scenario in a cartoon draw it out for them paint it out um use plays use role play kids love kind of um you know anything creative like that and when they're in that good form like when their positive brain chemicals are flying around they're more likely to learn the the scale of of bedtime and learn what it's all about um but yeah and perseverance with that one as well is so important because it can be a tricky one does
1: all of the crying from separation anxiety impact them mentally like will it stick with them long term highly unlikely um it
2: depends on the degree of it if it is a very you know if you did have a very traumatic separation where it was very quick um like like for example you know i'm thinking of a you know ukrainian refugee type scenario um where it's that severe then yes that would affect you and you probably your little amygdala will remember it but if it's upset that it lasts a few minutes where it's you know you're met with um kind of a calm caring person at the other side no it won't uh, no more than you'd remember episodes of extreme happiness or, or like or or laughter you know un- unless they
1: they're very very significant when someone hears you know you saying the more our needs are met the more we're likely to eventually become independent that you know it might make you think oh I, I should be responding responding and catering to my child's every need and it's just so difficult I mean of course it would be nice to be able to do that but in a way you're just prolonging it being really hard eventually
2: mm-hmm. so
1: you have to i guess know the give and take between yes them feel heard validated responded to but also it's in their best interest for you to give them mm-hmm. a little nudge sometimes like it's exactly and that's why you walk away um so
2: you know, you've responded to their need for some comfort when they're upset in that moment. But you also know this child is OK. They're going to be OK with that person. And now it's my time to walk away. And I suppose that's the the flip in that moment okay. of I have validated. I have been there for you. I'm leaving you with somebody safe. You are safe. And I'm now trusting that you will get through that emotion and walking
1: away. And it's in
2: that trust, I suppose, Okay, so this is
1: really important. Responding Mm -hmm. to their needs does not mean caving and giving them what they want all the time.
2: No, no, it doesn't foster kind of manipulative behavior, Um, especially when it's a very genuine upset, which it usually is when you're leaving in that moment of separation. Um, And when it is a very genuine upset and you uh, cater to it, you are showing them that the world is safe. You know, people respond to my needs. And they download that into their nervous system. Whereas if you repeatedly leave a child that's genuinely upset, upset and ignore it, they download this idea that the world isn't safe. Nobody like people aren't listening to my my feelings. Maybe I'll shut them down or maybe I'll act out even more. Um. So, yeah. And sometimes we need to differentiate between that genuine upset and that, you know, when kids get older, sometimes they can it might not be uh, uh,
1: as genuine. Okay. Well, it's very tricky. There is no easy answer and it's such a learning curve and something you are never prepared for, nor are you given any. Like you don't leave the hospital with a bloody manual about how to, you know, you you learn how to give them a bath and that's about it. That's about it. <laughs> that. And the, the the responsibility of shaping a person at such a young age when these formative experiences can be so... Um can set in motion or set in stone beliefs or you know like this idea of trust and and stuff it's it's a lot on the parent it really is a lot and i'm feeling it Mm. it's exhausting sometimes um i feel it too caroline honestly and i'm supposed to be the expert that knows it all
2: but honestly it's oh there's a difference between knowing and then doing when you're being pushed to your limits like it is really really difficult so i always say to parents that looking after yourself really is, is the number one thing you can do to help your child actually
1: thank you so much for um giving me so much wonderful expert advice and um really helping me to just better understand what's going on uh because like when you're in the when you're in the heat of the moment your own emotions are completely frazzled as well so it's good for you to also consider what's going on when you're calm as a parent um and I hope that this will be helpful as well for people as adults who are have a little bit more of an insight because it is like you say it's the same it's just um Mm. as adults we're a little bit more able to identify it in ourselves and and put in place those those uh those bumpers. Um. So, where if people want to just get more, uh, resources or information, where can people find you? So
2: I'm on Instagram, Dr. Rebecca Quinn, and I will be. There's. I have a few posts there already, actually, on separation anxiety, particularly at nighttime, because that's when it crops up a lot. Um. So yeah, and I will also be like, I have a summary of um tips for you know before the separation during and after that i'm going to post on my instagram um very shortly so uh keep an eye out there really that's where to to find most of my tips
1: dr rebecca quinn thank you so much and i'm sure i'll have you back on if you if you're willing to uh just go even deeper into the whole parenting anxiety side of things so thank you so much sure i'd love to yeah thanks caroline